Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Conversation, my opportunity to talk to interesting people about the coronavirus and even life beyond the coronavirus. Today, my interesting person is John Engels, the founder and president of Leadership Coaching Incorporated. LCI was founded in 1996 to help leaders promote responsibility, maturity, and confidence at work and at home, beginning with one's own functioning. John works as a corporate and individual coach to companies, institutions, individuals, and conducts annual nine-month intensive advanced leadership courses that build on the scientific and clinical research of the psychiatrist, Dr. Murray Bowen. I met John as a member of the 2013-14 cohort. John, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, it is such a treat to, we'll get a little bit in a minute about how I know you, but it's great to have you here. Thank you for the time. And before I dive into maybe a philosophical question, just want to start with how are you? How's your family, your adult children? How's life in, in the coronavirus? You guys doing okay? Yes. Uh, you know, I just, I've been very in touch with my privilege lately. I know that many, many people in our society are having a hard time with this and, um, uh, you know that 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 the virus and its effects, uh, you know, impacts people in a very different way based on economics and race. And I look around at my own life right now, and I'm basically safe. I'm I'm basically uh, sequestered in a in a safe place, in a comfortable place, and I'm in touch with my social network, my family, my support system, my uh, support structures. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't have what I have. So I'm, I think, you know, not only am I doing well, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, sort of really thinking more about those not doing well and, mm. and how, how to, uh, bridge my world with theirs. I'm doing mm. a lot of thinking about that. And you, but your family's well, your kids. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's well. Kids are well, yeah, they're well. They're all. Everybody's finding their way in this crazy world. Right. Yeah. Good. Well, uh, I don't know if I did a good job, so let me start with saying, you know, maybe give me the the elevator pitch about um, your work, since maybe people may not know about leadership coaching. How do you describe it to a to someone that doesn't know it? Well, it's we're a resource for leaders of organizations of all kinds, uh, businesses, family businesses, professional firms. Uh, not-for-profit organizations, NGOs in other countries, uh, social movements. So anywhere where uh, groups gather and there's a leader, those leaders um, are often alone. They're often kind of uh, in a position where they can't talk about everything with the people who are underneath them. And so we uh, help them to strengthen their leadership, to look at themselves, how they're functioning, their anxiety levels, their maturity levels, their skills, um, their communication, their relationships, both at home and at work. Mm. So we're we're really a, a sort of a overarching resource for leaders of organizations. Mm. So this this podcast you and I were talking about, it, we were coming in, really started uh, for me uh, with one fundamental question. I'm asking everybody I sit down with. So I'll start with asking you: When you think about, of course, your your business of leadership coaching, but you know, life in general. You, you've lived long enough to, you know, you were probably doing this business, you know, in 2008 when we had this, that problem. And perhaps even in 2011, of course you were, because it was, you know, you were doing that in 2011, but you were obviously alive and doing professional work. Th 
those are just two examples of, you know, let's say moments that we all lived through. But as I think about this one, which we're in it right now, we're not looking back, we're, we're in it. You know, uh, would you say, is it your opinion um, that we are, you know, this is an episode to be endured like, you know, others, we just need to hold on and, and, and get through it and life will return as normal? Or is it a transformational moment of a kind uh, for our, what, what do you think? I mean, I think it's both. Um, we have been through these kinds of crises before. Uh, some will say we've never been any through anything like this, but that's a short view of history. There, there's been a lot of uh, events, happenings, occurrences, you know, that are beyond our control where we don't fully understand what's going on. We don't fully know what to do, how to respond. Um, and we're in that time now. So I think... Uh, the phrase return to normal, I'm, I'm not sure uh, what that means, but I think that all these transformative moments, I'm, I'm sorry, all these uh, crisis moments have a, have a, a capacity to um, teach us something. And I think that's where the transformational aspect of your question comes in. I think it is a transformational moment in that um, it's affording us opportunity to step back, to take stock, to look at our lives, our relationships, the quality of those relationships. How's it going? What would we like to change? Um, it's giving us the opportunity to look at our work lives. Are we uh, where we want to be and where are we headed? And just to be more reflective. And um, also, I think it's bringing up uh, for many people the uh, topic of mortality. Um, mm. What what if I get the virus? How is it going to affect me? Um, I look around at the numbers and um, at people who are vulnerable. And so there's, there's. Um, I, I think it's helping us confront fear. It's helping us confront big questions in life. Yeah. So this is a big question, which you know could take hours. So I don't know how you're going to answer it. Um, but what is what is family systems theory? I know that's a big part of your work or the basis of your work. Um, and I'm just guessing that a lot of people don't know that, or maybe many people don't know what that means. What is family systems theory as best you can describe it in a minute or three? And how? what's its relationship to leadership? Okay. Yeah, that's a big question. So, well, I would describe it in a very short way of saying it's, it's a set of anti-blaming ideas and um, strategies that help leaders look at the systems that they're in, whether it's a family, a business, or a nation, could be a congregation, and uh, see what's really going on and how the parts of the system um, impact uh, one another. And when I say it's non-blaming, I mean that it, it is a, a way of looking at a problem, for example, in a system in a way that doesn't look for who's to blame or whose fault is it, but in, in a way that looks at what is my part in this problem what are other people's parts and how can I take more responsibility for my part? So in essence, it's a way of understanding what is really going on in front of our eyes that sometimes we can't even see a symptom in a family, uh, an event, a pattern, an occurrence. So that's generally what it is. And maybe you answered this, but um, what's its relationship um, or maybe a little more on leadership. How does a better understanding of family systems, whether it's in a church, a mom and dad, or a corporation or an, an, an institution, how does it help, um, or how, what's its relationship to leadership? Well, the critical uh, activity for leadership is thinking. 
Um, you have to feel, you have to deal with emotions, you have to deal with um, projects and tasks and getting things done. But the big deal with leadership, the higher you up, go up in an organization, at least in principle, the more you should be thinking. And uh, family systems uh, theory is a way of thinking about what's going on in your family. For example, if someone develops a cough or a fever or a panic attack or depression or a breast lump or any kind of cancer or anorexia. We can go on and on and on. What's really going on in the system that keeps that problem in place? This is a non-blaming way of looking at it. It's not somebody's fault. It's how do we contribute? How do different uh, players in the system contribute to anything that's going on? It could be a symptom for worse or it could be something for better. So it, it really looks at, uh, what I love about the theory is that it puts the onus on me to continually look for how I am impacting the systems that I work in and, and, and relate to in a way that I can do something about whatever I don't like just by looking at how I can shift my own functioning. Mm. So I'm going to have a little fun with you, John, since you've been, you're being very efficient in your answers, which is helpful. And I, I just printed off some some key learnings, I think, from my time with you. So the, we, I don't know if you would call these John-isms or just principles. And so I'm just going to share them, and you can riff for five seconds or a minute um, that might help us, the listening, um, learn about family systems. One must go beyond cause and effect thinking. What does that mean? Say a few words about What it that. means is that there's rarely a single cause for anything that happens. It's typically any any issue or problem or challenge in life has multiple contributing factors. So what this, uh, this statement means is that instead of looking for causes, single causes, which tend to be simplistic and tidy and easy and inaccurate, trying to look for what are some of the factors that contribute to what's going on, knowing that I'm probably not going to see everything but I can, I can get a fuller picture if I look at, uh, the, at the, uh, the context for a problem or an issue and uh, some of the factors that might be contributing to it as opposed to just looking to blame someone or an easy answer. Can you think of a simple example in a family or business? Uh, anytime somebody says, I know why she's like that or I know why he functions like that, it's because of X and it could be it's because your mother was like that or it'd be it because see. he's just going through a hard time or, you know, I just read an article where it said that the uh, people in the 2008 recession, there was a higher rate of suicide and people committed suicide because of their financial situation. That's an example of a simplistic cause and effect idea. If people committed suicide because their financial situation went south. Why didn't everyone whose financial situation went south commit suicide? So it's a little more complicated than that. Another example would be people who, people, uh, smoking causes lung cancer. If smoking causes lung cancer in and of itself, why doesn't everyone who smoke gets lung cancer? The point is it's more complicated than just a simple way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. So that's the idea. That's great. Okay, here's another one. The, le the language of leadership is being very clear on what you want and expect. Yeah, so we say that, that a leader, uh, people who follow a leader want to know who the leader is, what the leader believes in, what the leader wants, and what the leader expects. The problem is that many leaders are over-focused on what everyone else wants, and they don't really do the reflection and the deep searching necessary to really come up with, well, what do I want here? What do I want to see? 
what what are my expectations and can i uh clarify those for myself first and then can i decide of those that i've clarified for myself which do i want to communicate to others so that's that's uh a very important part of leadership is what do you want mm. do you do you even know mm. yeah maybe this is related leaders don't borrow or take from others but lead from within well, borrowing and taking in that context has to do with borrowing self. So borrowing self means that <clears throat> I don't know who I am, so tell me who you are, and then I'll, I'll have, I'll, I might adapt or adopt what you uh, believe and who you are to my own thinking. For example, in a religious context, you know, is it coincidental that married partners just happen to have the exact same faith belief? Or does that have something to do with the fact that they want to connect with one another and join one another and they're sharing the faith, not so much because they believe everything the same way, but because they want to do this together. Mm. So that would be an example of, of you know, uh, a, a good question mm. around that. Um, the goal of leadership is to promote maturity and responsibility in all its members. Right. It. Yes. So emotional maturity is one of the two big themes we talk about in our work. The other is anxiety regulation. And uh, there are a whole bunch of very smart scholars and others trying to define the contributing factors or the, or the components of emotional maturity. What does it mean to be mature? What does it even mean? And one of the keys, not the only key, is is the ability to take responsibility for one's own functioning. Now, the, the, there are caveats with that that I think are important. One is that not everyone, again, as I alluded earlier, in this society has an equal shot at life. So when you say you're totally responsible, that that implies that everyone has the same chance to be responsible, and that's... Uh, there's mounting evidence that that's not accurate. So I would say uh, as a leader, you want to encourage responsibility to the extent that people can do it, to the extent possible. To extent, you know, to the extent possible, you want to encourage everyone to grow themselves up, to take responsibility for their own feelings, their thoughts, their actions, their decisions, um, their disappointments, and their problems to the extent possible. There are outside factors that influence that, but to the extent possible, take responsibility. So, would you say? And I'm, um, I know these are it's, these are it's hard to be very simplistic about these more, um, you know, meaty ideas. But that what it means one definition, maybe not the one definition of of leadership is maturity. I mean, that they are they are they are you almost saying the same thing? What it means to be a good leader. There may be leaders might have some leaders are type A, some type are not. You know these, you know these ideas that our leaders all of the same um, profile. I think you would say many people would say no. There's they come in all different sizes and shapes. You know um, some are very demonstrative, some are, are are great communicators, some aren't, et cetera, et cetera. But is it is one of the things that you would um, believe um, that one of the core characteristics of good leadership is maturity? knowing yourself, I don't know, however you'd want to talk about that. Well, I teach, uh, my teachings surround the topic or the theme of maturity. And yet I'm, I'm opposed to reducing leadership to a set of traits because I think really if in reality, 
Leadership depends very much on the situation somebody is in. What is required depends on the situation. For example, somebody who is impulsive and quick in reacting to a threat, that's typically not seen as a mature trait, but there may be situations where that quick response can save somebody's life. So there you have it. There you have an example of a trait that normally wouldn't be seen as mature that actually tends up to... So it, it's depends not... Depends on the role they're in. Yeah, and it's, it's complicated. So I would yeah. say, look at the situation... You know, could Abraham Lincoln lead your congregation? He led the country in a certain time, but does it depend on context? Was he maybe the right person for the right time, but maybe for another time or another situation, maybe he wouldn't be the best leader? Mm -hmm. So it's complicated. Um, and I don't even know if I wrote this one down, but I'll, maybe I, I thought I'd ask you. A leader is in a strategic position when they don't know. Yeah, so... Um, if you take the word agnostic, literally, it, it, it's from the Greek gnosis, meaning the Greek for knowledge, it means I don't know. So in, not in a theological context necessarily, but in a leadership context, staying agnostic, staying in a position where you don't know, puts you in a position of learning. It puts you in a position of questioning, puts you in a position of having to understand, wanting to be fascinated by people, wanting to get to the bottom of things. If you're, if you're not ignorant, you don't need to get to the bottom. You already know. If you already know, you're probably not in a great position to learn. Mm. So I find that a lot of leaders assume that they have to know. So they act like they know even when they don't know, instead of trying to stay, I see. what I would say, agnostic. That's good. Yeah. And maybe one last one that may also be helpful in understanding the work of family systems Learning, learn to delegate anxiety back to the person who brings it. Yeah, so when people come into your office or into your presence and they have a problem, um, it's really important to understand that it is their problem and you're helping them look at their problem. Um, too often leaders who are over-functioning and who I would say would, are sort of caring too much uh, tend to automatically take the problem from people as if it was their own problem. And that is not uh, consistent with a, an emotionally mature leadership response. Mm. So I'll get personal. You can go as far or as not far as you want. What have you learned from your own family system and, and how has it challenged or enhanced your own leadership? Boy, that's a good question and a challenging one. Uh, I think the main thing that I've learned in, in kind of working with my own family, my multi-generational family, learning about it and sort of thinking about my upbringing and talking with my siblings and my parents, is that my family is just like every other family. We're a mixed bag. We, we have advantages. We have disadvantages. We have dysfunctions. We have functions. Um, and that's, that may seem like a, a vanilla kind of learning, but actually I grew up thinking my family was special was kind of better than other families, more, we had more going for us. We had, and you know, as I grew and I studied, I began to study this material, I, I began to see that my family has its own set of challenges, its own saints and sinners, its own, you know, people who uh, really were good thinkers and other people were highly reactive. And it's just a mixed bag. And in, in I would say, I do family, um, family diagrams and with almost every client I work with, uh, four generation family diagrams. Most families that I work with, most people are from families that are mixed bag. 
very few families are strictly functional or strictly dysfunctional. Mm. So one question I had, even when I was did, was privileged to work with you, um, is the um, the question of a, a leader's ability or a human per, a being's ability, but a leader's ability to grow. Because one of the things I remember in my early, and I'm still early, understanding of family systems, um, going back to Murray Bowen, who I know is is a big part of it, is you know I forget the term, but you know that you're 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 sort of born at some level. Can't remember how you know and. And and you may never go beyond that. Or, I mean, help me. I may be, I may be saying that wrong. Yes, Bowen taught that um, that maturity is pretty well defined by young adulthood, and it's difficult to advance it more than a few degrees, let's say, in a lifetime. Um, I don't live by that rule because I try to. I'm trying to grow myself to be as mature as I can. But I think there are limits into, you know, it's hard to take a really low maturity person and say that by the end of their life, they're going to be a very high maturity person. Mm -hmm. That's asking a lot. Right. Um, so I think that even though there are limits, all of us can advance a little bit and a little bit more maturity goes a long ways. Right. So what does it mean? A little bit more responsibility, a little bit more um, <clears throat> capacity to regulate emotional responses, um, to distinguish feeling from thinking. To um, to tell the difference between helpful helpfulness and unhelpful helpfulness, those are some of the elements that I would look mm. for in myself. Yeah, I like what you said. A little bit of growth goes a long way, or however you said it. Yeah. A um, couple quick questions on anxiety, which I know is such a big topic in our day. Um, what's the relationship between anxiety and emotional maturity? Yeah, they, there's such a, a close relationship because anxiety is such a great challenge for all of us. You know, how do we manage ourselves when we're under pressure, when the system is under pressure, when problems arise in the family or in the institution or in the society? And you can see that when anxiety shoots up or, or uh, burdens begin to pile up, that uh, people have a harder time regulating their reactivity. And the reactivity often causes bigger problems than the original problem. So it's a big deal to try to stay as non-anxious and calm as possible in times of higher stress like we're in right now. The relationship to leadership is that the leader's level of anxiety profoundly influences the anxiety level of the group. So if the leader is clearly defined in a group, meaning people know who the leader is, uh, how that leader shows up, the leader's presence, more than what they do, their presence, their sense of uh, of calmness, their sense of, of poise, their sense of purposefulness, um, that has a profound effect on people being able to go about their work, stay focused, and also look to the leader for direction and um, guidance and trust that leader, knowing that the leader is basically steady. Mm. You know, one question I'd love to explore with you at another time, but I'll, we can just be a short answer here. Um, you, you talk some in your work about, you know, the, the working of the human brain um, and, of course, emotions and the relationship. And I know there, there's a lot been on brain science lately, but I, I wonder if, you know, the when you talk about leadership or we talk about reactivity or anxiety is... Um, if you were trying to explain this to somebody, you know, in a deep conversation, when you talk about being caught and whether or not you you overreact, 
is it ultimately, or maybe ultimately is the wrong word, is it, is it largely a conversation about, let's say, um, brain functioning and or is it about um, emotional functioning and are those two things different? That, that's just a question I have, so maybe it, that makes sense. Well, the, emo the seat of emotion is in the brain and the hippocampus, so uh, obviously any emotional response is, is brain- So they're strongly related. Delivered. However, the social system that one lives in and works in also affects brain chemistry and brain organization. You know, this whole field of epigenetics, which says that uh, gene expression can change based on the anxiety levels of the social system that you are brought up in, that you live in, that you work in. Mm. It suggests that um, our emotional functioning is influenced not only by the chemicals in our brain, but by the people who we live and work work around. Mm. For uh, some of our listeners and myself, what's the best book or books you've read on leadership, either lately or in general? Well, let's see. There's so many great books out there, and I, I really recommend to leaders that they try to stay away from books on leadership. Not stay away from, but to add to their repertoire of leadership books by reading outside of their fields. You know, read about animals, read about nature, read about, um, you know. So I, there's a couple books that really stick in my head that I thought were really superb. One was by, uh, it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. Oh, Kahneman. Yeah, yeah, by um, Daniel Kahneman, and and that's a, just a tremendous uh, wake up call on how much of our beliefs and how much of our operating behavior is based on uh, stories we make up. Um, and the other book I think that I would recommend is called "Growing Yourself Up" by Jenny Brown, which is a book on uh, really talking about how family systems theory can help in practical day to day ways people grow uh, their own maturity. Well, it's so interesting you, you brought up um, Kenneman because I wanted to ask you maybe even off, off the podcast, but I'll do it now since you brought it up. But I read, um, I don't know, a year or so ago, which maybe you've read, but you must know about it, um, The Undoing Project. And to me, um, I, was, I was very, you know, had no knowledge or background knowledge of either Kenneman or Tversky, these two Jewish psychologists, one who the, um, the former won the Nobel Prize in economics, big surprise, um, you know, in 15 years ago or so. But what really fascinated me about it, I'm still fascinated about it, is the whole idea of behavioral economics. And this is going to be very simplistic. Um, but as I understand, behavioral economics is this shift in in, in understanding how people make fundamental decisions in, 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 in economic decisions, whether you're buying a car or the kind of woman you want to marry or man you want to marry or whatever, the kind of decisions that you make are, are, have been thought forever in a day uh, to be rational, mainly a rational decision based on some kind of rational models. And their challenge was, um, these two great thinkers, was maybe not so much. And that really these are based on I guess I don't want to pit emotional and rational, but on, on more of an emotional um, response that isn't always rational. And that was fascinating, that that book was fascinating. But as I come to understand it, it has in many ways taken over the, the discipline of economics. The guy who won the 2017 Nobel Prize for 
economics, who used to teach here at UR, um, is is a behavioral econo economist. So does that interest you, or does that just affirm you, what you've always believed? Or uh, since you've read Kennedy, no, it's very interesting, and it's you know it, it's it's familiar terrain for me to to explore and learn about and teach from. Um, you know, people. And look, a, a ten thousand uh, dollar Rolex watch keeps the same time as a thirty dollar Timex. Why do people buy the ten thousand dollar watch? It's not about accuracy of time. It's about something else. What is the something else? What are the factors? What influences the decisions we make? In our course now, we we have uh, an exercise. I don't think we were doing it when you went through it, uh, Rob, but we. Uh, ask people to write a three-page money autobiography in which they look at their money values and beliefs from childhood forward. And it's uh, we ask, uh, I think, 15 or 20 questions. They're really, really thoughtful questions about people's attitudes about money and how that influences not only what they buy, but what, what, their, what their work is, how long they work, when do they retire, how much is enough. All of those questions... They often go with only light or no reflection, and boy, we get tremendous feedback on the value of doing this from our from our leaders. So, a couple um, final questions, John, about faith. Um, one is just reading your bio, and, and you and I talked a little bit about it, but I don't I don't know a lot about your the work that you did um, in graduate work in theology. But what connection, if any? Is there between that graduate work, which you must have had of interest in, you know, so many years ago, and the work that you find yourself doing, you know, today? Yeah, that's a really good question. I very rarely get asked the question, but I, I think uh, there's a there's a really good connection for me. I think the two big things my theological education gave me were one, it um, it taught me how to ask deeper questions and to get comfortable with. I would call ultimate questions or why am I here and you know what is life really about and is there anything that happens after death and you know what is my real purpose and and why does it matter those questions are routine in the study of uh, theology theology is basically the study of of the divine and and religious belief systems spiritual belief systems so studying those belief systems um, so they, it just got me ready to work with executives and, and leaders in a way that I could ask them some deep questions and not be um, afraid of that and, and actually normalize those questions. So that, that's been really helpful because I think the differentiating one of the differentiating uh, elements of our business, our own business, is, is depth. And the depth comes from, the, I think, the, st uh, the studies that I've done. The second advantage I think it gave me was it exposed me to a wide spectrum of uh, belief systems, religious belief systems throughout the world. So I became, I did a pretty good deep dive on world religions and not only mainline religions, but tribal belief systems. And it really helped me uh, frame uh, faith in a broader context than the Christian Catholic, Christian faith I was raised in. Mm. And last but not least, you know, I'm a pastor, I have to ask this, you know, what, what, what role does it play for you today at all? Is, is faith, is, does faith have a role in your life today? And if it does, what, what role does it have? Well, um, so faith, I assume you mean by faith, what, what I believe in, what do I believe and what do I believe in? And um, honestly, I am always questioning this this question that you're asking, I'm, mm. I, 
I was working with a client a, a few years ago whose four-year-old daughter died on the heart transplant table. Mm. And I, I asked myself, what, why would any creator or divine entity um, allow this kind of tragedy, allow so much uh, uh, war and hatred and, and prejudice and evil to exist in the world? Why would this be? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and so I, I think my faith is always questioning, you know, what, what, what does happen to us after we die? I'm left when I consider, you know, I, I've talked to uh, um, a colleague of mine who's a faith keeper for the Iroquois Nation, and he told me about the Iroquois creation story. And he told me about Grandmother Moon and about Sky Woman and about the, the, the twins that Sky Woman uh, produced, these twins of good and evil. And there were all the elements of so many other belief systems in this Iroquois creation story. It's not a Christian story. It's mm. not a Jewish story. It's not a Muslim story. It's mm. a it's a native, uh, nature based belief system. Mm. And there are maybe I don't think thirty four hundred belief systems have been documented. Mm. So I, I my own faith experience is is basically uh, comes down to questions questions that I can't. Mm. Uh, necessarily answer to to some kind of clarity, but I find that the questions themselves are um, one keep me on my toes, and two keep me from being too judgmental mm. about um, other people's faith experiences and trying to be really respectful of where people arrive. Mm. So I mean, I'm 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 not denominationally based, right. and. Uh, that, you know, I, I kind of, in the end, I kind of sit down sometimes and I say, if there is a God, this God understands what I'm saying right now right. and is okay with it. Yeah. That's how I, that's how I justify it, I guess. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're open. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to be open yeah. and, you know, how do you do that and still have convictions that are yeah. clear? Right. So that's where I stand right now. Um, let me say one last thing and give you a chance to say, if you want to, anything about how people could get in touch with you. Um, but let me just thank you on air here. Uh, I did mention quickly, we did this cohort in 13, 14, and I've just really, as I've said to you personally, it's made a huge impact in my life and was so grateful to have that time. And and I think it not only helped me in that nine months or year, but um, I've been, in many ways, it set a, it set a course for uh, some new learning. And I thank you for that. And um, But how does, if, 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 if I'm a leader, uh, I don't know, doctor, lawyer, um, you know, whatever I am out there, or any kind of business leader or institutional leader that might be interested in, in your work. How would they get a hold of you? Well, let me let me just say one thing. I want to say one thing about you, and that is that as a pastor, or maybe I could ask you a question. As a pastor who has clear convictions about your own faith experience, how do you maintain those convictions and that clarity, and at the same time? grant openness and freedom to people who believe differently or even in opposite ways from your own faith how do you how do you how do you manage that yeah that's such a great question and it shouldn't be a hard question to answer in that um you know if if in my confession or my as a christian the whole goal of christianity could be summed up in a sentence try to be more like jesus right and jesus did that very well 
right? I mean, yes, Jesus had a point of view, but I mean, Jesus was, you know, uh, you know, spent much of his gospel career talking to, you know, whether they were religious right people or, you know, flagrant sinner, uh, you know, prostitutes and everything. And, um, you know, I would say, so one, I, 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 I think I want to do what Jesus did, but, um, you know, in, in another sense, my, my goal, if I have a goal to want to share the message, if that's what my role is in a way, um, it's, it's that and no more. My job isn't to convert people um, or to make them think what I think. Um, my job is simply to make, to be a witness of what God has done in my life. Mm -hmm. And to be, um, and yes, if you ask me because you want to know and you say, you know, you know, Rob, do you believe A, B, C, or D? I might say, yes, 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 or no. But mostly my, you know, what I hope I do is, you know, the great Francis of Assisi, you know, um, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. You've heard that certainly. Mm. And which means it doesn't mean the gospel has no propositional um, content, but it means the gospel ultimately is lived uh, out expressed in your life. And um, that's my hope. Mm. I'm, an on, I'm in that sense, I'm on a journey, as you said. And uh, so I am, um, and I also, I was not born and raised in a, in a, in a, in a faith family. It was nominal um, um, Catholicism. In my case, no knock to Catholicism, but I was a nominal um, Catholic and more or less almost virtually a non-believer uh, in God. And so I didn't come to faith until I was a young adult. Mm. So for me, you know, the people who engaged me in conversation and challenged me to think and read, um, you know, I, I, I have great respect for those people. So I want to be one of those kind of people. Wow, that's a great response. I appreciate that. Yeah. And let's see. So my, um, my website is leadershipcoachinginc.com. So that's the best way for people great. to reach me. Yep. Well, John, thank you. I'm so honored to have this time with you. It's, it's a great. privilege. Thanks for being with us. And who knows, maybe we can do it again. I hope so. I loved it. So friends, thank you for joining us. And uh, stay tuned for another episodes of The Conversation coming up soon.